Talking History on News Talk. Good evening and welcome. We're Talking History on News Talk 106 to 108 with me, Patrick Gagan. In tonight's show, the Vikings and North America in fact and fiction, the rise and fall of the Orange Order during the Great Famine, the story of the remarkable women who created the world's first professional organisation dedicated to the campaign for women's rights, how textiles help make the world. And finally, to end the show, we'll be digging up Britain to find new archaeological discoveries. Last week, we discussed the work of Mary Wollstonecraft and found out why her work still resonates today. Talked about Irish men and women in the Second World War and found out how the Neolithic Revolution transformed our world. And if you want to listen back to that show or any of our older shows, just go to our website, newstalk.com or wherever you download your podcasts. We begin tonight's show with Norse America, the story of a founding myth. The story of the Vikings in North America is both fact and fiction, from the westward expansion of the Norse across the North Atlantic in the 10th and 11th centuries to the myths and fabrications about their presence there that have developed in recent centuries. And a new book explores the myth and indeed the reality. The book is called Norse America, the story of a founding myth. It's published in hardback by Oxford University Press and costs uh, £20 sterling, so about €24. Euro. I'm delighted to welcome the author Gordon Campbell to the show tonight. Gordon, you're very welcome. It's good to be with you again. We last spoke in December 2019. Just before the pandemic, little did we know. Little did we know. My God, it feels like a lot longer that we've chatted. <laughs> uh, but absolutely brilliant having you back. And I really enjoyed the book because what we're getting is, I suppose, a story that we kind of know from some fictional accounts. We kind of have some impressions of it from fact. How much of it is reality? So, for example, when we look at the historical sagas of, say, Eric the Red, how, how much truth is there to these sagas? Uh, well, very little, I, I fear. They, um, they're, um, they describe journeys. It's the case that they describe journeys, but they're, they're not logbooks recording actual voyages um, by the named historical individuals. Um, they're, they're family sagas. There may have been a chieftain called Eric the Red around whom legends accumulated. It's possible that he had a son called Leif Erikson, but I, I doubt it. Um, their voyages to Greenland and then the lands to the west, um, as described in the sagas, may or may not have happened. Um, maybe they did exist, and the sagas preserve certain shards of memory. In other words, you end up thinking that that, um, Eric and Life and their companions exist in a rather awkward liminal space between fact and fiction. And that's not easy to contend with. So let's talk about the reality then. How much do we know about the Vikings, the Norse, travelling to North America and the idea that they may have been there before Columbus? Well, it, it, part of it depends on what you think of as North America. Um, if it includes Greenland, which in a rational world it should, um, then we know the Vikings arrived in about 985, and they stayed for 500 years or just short of that until the mid-15th century, possibly 40 or 50 years before Columbus sailed the Atlantic. And, and from Greenland, they sailed into what is now the eastern Canadian Arctic, uh, and we know they sailed uh, at least as far south as as Newfoundland. So they're well established. The Greenland colony, well, estimates of the population have come down in recent years, but it's it's two to three thousand people living there for for many generations. So long before Columbus. Long before Columbus. And do we know if any of the people who were there in Greenland, whether any of the Norse there had contacts with the, the indigenous people of North America? Um, there's, there's, there's one artifact that, that proves that there was. Um, it's, it's now in Copenhagen, but it's, a, it's an arrowhead. And it was found in a, a graveyard that closed about 1350. So it was made before 1350. But the style and the material from which it's made means that it comes from a very specific point on the coast of Labrador, where the Norse may well have gone to collect timber. Now, the fact that it's in a graveyard um, suggests that this arrow 
Arrowhead may not have traveled back to Greenland in a, in a Norseman's pocket, but may have come back in his skull. Um, we don't know exactly where in the graveyard it was, but as evidence of contact, that's as solid as, as it gets. Um, beyond that, there are a few trade goods in, in, um, in Inuit sites in northern Canada, but that's about it. In the famous site in Newfoundland, Lanceau Meadows, um, there is no evidence of contact. But of course, absence of evidence is, is not evidence of absence. Um, so there may have been contact, but there's no evidence that there was. Now, what's fascinating about this book is that there really are two parts to it. And you also explore the, the strong demand that some people have in, in North America to have these Norse links, that there is, there is faked evidence, there's mm. a, a, an important mythology and that uh, there's, there's, a very, there's a very strong demand for this narrative to be true. There is. Um, I first discovered it years ago. I was in Iceland and I, I went round the National Museum and there was no mention or display of Greenland. And I thought that, that's peculiar. Um, and then um, I went to the National Cathedral, which is a few hundred yards away. And, and there in front of the National Cathedral is a vast statue of Life the Lucky. And I, I was puzzled a bit until I walked around the back of it and it said, a gift of the American people. So um, it, it, was, it was the Americans wanting to be discovered by the North rather than the, the Icelanders where, where, um, where, where life was born, um, wanting, to, um, wanting to, to explore America themselves. The Icelanders and Greenlanders did not see America as their destination. Um, they, they saw... Um, it, it, it's the Americans who, who, and indeed Canadians in some cases, that, that see uh, the, the, the destiny of, of the westward march across the Atlantic. And does understanding the myth of the Norse origins, is that important for understanding or does that help us, help give us an insight into white supremacy today? Yeah, well, alas, it does. Um, it... Uh, um, it Columbus was needed immediately after the American Revolution because they needed to um, dissociate themselves from the English. Um, so Columbus was adopted in, in, in the first few years after the Revolution. But eventually, um, people, especially in the northern states, uh, became uneasy about this because Columbus was, uh, well, he was an Italian working in the service of, of Spain. Uh, had worked in Portugal. This, this was all bad news. And he was a Catholic. Um, and there was lots of anti-Catholic prejudice, whereas the North had the advantage of eventually converting to Protestantism. And therefore, the myth arose that it was somehow in their genes. It was built into them. They were, they were proto-Protestants. Um, now, the fact that there isn't the slightest shred of evidence for any of this um, doesn't matter uh, because what happens if you believe something passionately and there's no evidence for it is you manufacture evidence. And it's the manufacturing of evidence that, that I became interested in, um, rune stones that claimed to be medieval that were in fact late 19th century, that, that kind of thing. And I was curious about what drove people to insist on, on, um, uh, on Nordic origins. And this then plays into a notion of, of Nordic people as, um, as, as superior, the master race. Um, there's an English collection, somebody like Charles Kingsley, as in Water Babies. He says the Anglo-Saxon, which is a female race, required impregnation from the great male race of the North. So this is a hybrid that was deemed to be racially superior and, and so the natural dominant group in America, the group that needed no hyphen in its, in, in its identity. And this, this spins off um, in, in ways that, on the one hand, are entirely harmless with family history and that kind of thing. You know, I, I have Norwegian ancestors. But on the other hand, it does spin off into um, racial superiority. And, and that, as, as we know, uh, became sinister and is, is still... 
Um, it, it's still a huge problem in America, as, as indeed it is in Britain, although it takes a different form in, in, in Britain. But um, more recently, um, far-right groups in, in America have adopted Viking terminology and, and sort of emblems um, to, to represent their extremist stance. So it's a myth that's been expropriated by, by rather sinister uh, white supremacist groups. God, so there's a much darker element to the story There, as there well. is a dark side, yes. And um, in understanding the present, um, it, 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 it helps us to understand the origin of, of the dark side. Well, part Gor- of the reason why I became a historian. Well, Gordon, you've done an absolutely brilliant job uh, exploring all these different dimensions in this new book. It's called Norse America, the story of a founding myth. It's published in hardback by Oxford University Press. The author, Gordon Campbell. And Gordon, thanks so much for joining us tonight. Oh, thanks for having me again. I look forward to the next time. And hopefully there will be no more pandemics in between. Absolutely. <laughs> thanks so much, Gordon. We'll be back with more Talking History on News Talk after this. Talking History on News Talk. Well, welcome back to Talking History. In the mid 19th century, the Orange Order of Ireland fell into and emerged from apparent extinction into a vigorous resurrection, which was then stopped in its tracks at Dolly's Bray. A new book explores the causes and consequences of these wrenching reversals of, of fortune that Orange men went through at this pivotal time in history. The book is called The Rise and Fall of the Orange Order During the Famine Years from Reformation to Dolly's Bray. It's published in hardback by Four Courts Press and costs €45. Euro. The author is Dara Kern and Dara, very welcome to the show tonight. Thanks, Patrick. It is fascinating. Look, the Orange Order, as our listeners uh, probably know, was founded in 1795, but uh, yeah. disbanded then, uh, and uh, you know, just before the period that we're looking at in this book, and then revived. Can you tell us about that background? Uh, why had it disbanded, and then why did it revive? Yeah, it disbanded first of all in 1825, but it managed to get itself back together again. And come the period 1836, it disbanded under government pressure. The government really were getting a bit fed up with the whole trouble and aggravation that Orange marches tended to bring about. And it was a Liberal government, a white government that was in power at the time in Westminster, not really too keen on the Orange Order. And with Daniel O'Connell needed as an ally, for this white government, O'Connell was able to put enough pressure on the government to bring about this inquiry into the Orange Order. A government commission was carried out and it found various things on the Orange Order not too surprising. Everybody really knew these things, but the main thing was that there were Orange Lodges within the military. That wasn't allowed at posed a potential of unlikely threat to national security and the government pretty much had decided to wind up the Orange Order but before that could happen and in order to avoid embarrassment the upper classes and leadership of the Orange Order took the decision to disband the order itself before the government could actually push it over the edge. And then we see it being revived then, uh, I think certainly it had revived by 1845 and uh, leading into the pivotal periods then during uh, during the famine. Yeah, you know, it, yes, it had been officially disbanded. It didn't exist anymore as an actual body, but it had been continued at grassroots level. It was just too important of an organisation for ordinary lower-class Protestants to suddenly abandon and forget about. So it did continue very much at grassroots level, at local level. It did continue. Those members didn't really take any heed of what was going on in Dublin or in London anyway. So they carried on, and it still remained pretty strong, especially throughout Ulster until the period around about 1845. Then the decision was made to actually officially reform the Orange Order again just prior to the famine. And talk to me about the impact then of the famine on the Orange Order and on Orange Men because 
certainly had a had a had a big impact and you see parades and you see processions and celebrations uh, uh, and in a way the the failure of the young Ireland rebellion in 1848 seems to have then uh, provided further momentum yeah it did very much continue throughout the famine period probably not really that well documented that the famine did have a pretty adverse effect in Ulster as well as the rest of the country and the lower class Protestants, the lower class orange men were affected. There were death rates. There was high mortality and disease among the order. Parades did continue at a lesser level. And for a lot of members, there was a sort of a decision to be made whether to actually go in procession or to hold back. They were advised to hold back due to the whole idea of big crowds and the spreading of disease that can happen within big crowds. But some orange men did continue, especially in the bigger areas like Belfast or Lisburn, for example. They did continue with the marches and it was able to continue at a lesser scale, but it certainly did continue. Some orange lodges individually did raise funds and donate to needy causes. And the Orange Order, it was able to withstand the ravages of the famine, although at, a, I suppose, a much scaled back level than they previously had been involved with. And what was the impact then of the Young Ireland Rebellion in 1848? Um, did that increase fears or was there a sense of triumphalism because of how badly that went? Yeah, well, initially, before the rebellion actually took place, it certainly did increase fear. There was an awful lot of sense of panic throughout Ulster, and an awful lot of Orange Lodges did apply to go to the government, to Dublin especially, looking for the go-ahead for procuring arms, for example, and forming militias in order to fight any potential threat. These overtures were all rejected by the government because, quite simply, they just weren't needed because of how poor the actual Young Ireland organisation was. But the very fact that Orangemen had offered the government their assistance and the very fact that the rebellion was such a farce, really, it did propel the order onto a sort of a stronger platform again at that point. And, you know... Gained popularity, again, because of the fear factor and because the government sort of gave it guarded acceptance. That allowed an awful lot of the upper classes to come back on board. These classes that had abandoned it in 1836 now sort of had the legitimacy again to get back on board. So talk to me then about the events in County Down in 1849 and this this terrible clash with Catholics that that in a way provided the fall of the title of your book after this period of, of rise and recovery. Uh, then you have this dramatic fall then uh, following those events. Yeah, it was just a, really a clash where in 1848, so the previous year, 1848, Orangemen had tried to march through this mountain pass and make their way to the estate of Lord Roden, who was one of the chief Orangemen in the area. In 1848, the path was blocked by local Catholics and they were forced to retreat. This, of course, was sort of greeted with great triumph by the local Catholics and there was an awful lot of antagonism leading up to 1849, and it was a bit of a humiliation for the Orange men. So come 1849, they were determined that they were going to force their way through this time around, and that's really what did happen. They were well armed, they were prepared for trouble, and when the Catholics attempted to block the pass again at Dollysbury, this time the Orange men responded with armed resistance and shots broke out and it sort of was considered a great victory for the Orange men because the Catholics retreated, some of them were killed and the Orange men forced their way through to Roden's estate and were able to carry on with their activities there. 
problem was, of course, that you know this wasn't going to be looked at in very high regard by the authorities or the government, and that's where the big problem started for the Orange Order. Yes, indeed. Well, you tell the story so well in the book. It's called The Rise and Fall of the Orange Order During the Famine Years. It's published in hardback by Four Courts Press. The author, Dara Curran. And Dara, thanks so much for joining us tonight. Thanks, Patrick. Thank you. We'll be back with more Talking History on News Talk right after this. Talking History on News Talk. Well, welcome back to Talking History. Women have won their political independence. Now is the time for them to achieve their economic freedom too. This was the great rallying cry of the pioneers who in 1919 created the Women's Engineering Society, the world's first professional organisation dedicated to the campaign for women's rights. And the story has been told in a brilliant new book, Magnificent Women and Their Revolutionary Machines. It's published in paperback by Unbound and costs 9.99 sterling, so about €13. Euro. The author is Henrietta Heald. And Henrietta, you're very welcome to the show tonight. Hello. Henrietta, you're very welcome. And I was wondering, could you go back to 1919 and tell us what was the motivation behind the foundation of the Women's Engineering Society? Well, of course, it was just after the First World War. And all the women who were involved in founding the society had in some way been um, working in the munitions factories uh, in all sorts of different roles. And, of course, that had been a hugely liberating experience for them because they... um, for the first time in their lives, they had independent uh, income. Um, they were a lot of them were living away from home. They were learning new skills, and um, they were really doing jobs. A lot of them that they enjoyed. I mean, clearly they were dangerous too, the jobs. But um, they they gave a lot of them were, were quite highly skilled. So yes, um, learned a great deal from it. And they were brought together in, in all, all different walks of society came together um, in the munitions factories. Uh, um, but the point is that after the First World War, uh, they were told they were no longer needed. Um, when the men came back from the front, uh, they were just um, expected to go back to the home. And as we know, we women were not always kind of as pliable as that. And... Um, so what they did was that they came together to form this society, uh, which would actually um, it was it was actually formed uh, to protest against a, a new law, which was called the Restoration of Pre-War Practices Act. Now this this was um, really actually outlawing women from industry, um, and so they it was outlawing women from working in industry. And they, of course, they were furious about it. And um, so they came together to campaign uh, for, for, the, for, for, uh, for women's rights. And it was, it was, as you said earlier, the first organization in the world to campaign for... It was the first professional organization in the world to campaign for women's rights. And there's a very strong Irish connection through uh, Catherine and Rachel Parsons, a mother and daughter who were part of that uh, uh, great Anglo-Irish family, the Parsons of Burr and County Offaly. That's right. Well, they were the two women who really at the forefront of setting up the Engineering Society. Catherine Parsons was the wife of Charles Parsons, who became Sir Charles Parsons, and um, who who was an inventor of the steam turbine which was the most revolutionary um, invention of its time because then this was, I mean, it was within the 1880s. He um, introduced the steam turbine into ships and the proposal, it revolutionized propulsion of ships. And um, it also uh, made possible the generation of electricity on a vast scale. I mean, Charles Parsons was regarded as a a genius in the same uh, bracket as James Watt and Michael Faraday, um, and as far as the history of generation of ele- electricity is concerned, and of course he came from Burr. Um, he grew up at Burr, uh, and which was then called Parsons Town because it was so long associated with the Parsons family. And um, his father was was this wonderful astronomer, William Parsons, the third Earl of Ross, who built the Leviathan of Parsons Town which was this incredible um, uh, telescope. It was the biggest in the world at the time, and this was in the 1840s. He built this, it had a six-foot speculum, 
uh, or mirror, uh, which allowed it to see further out into space than anything before. And um, he, he was, you know, uh, gained worldwide fame. In fact, visitors flocked to Burr to see this. And uh, it's still there now, by the way. So um, if people want to go and see it, it's, um, it still can be seen at Burr. Um, anyway, the point, Catherine was his wife um, and uh, Rachel Parsons was his daughter. And these two women together came together to set up the society. Uh, they'd, they'd worked in the, in the turbine factories themselves during the war. And um, they, they, Rachel was a particularly interesting character because she was the first woman to study mechanical sciences at uh, Cambridge University. Um, and so she was a really tra- she was a trained engineer, which was not true of most of these women because they didn't have the opportunity to go to university. But unfortunately, Rachel's life ended in in tragedy. Well, that was that's a that's a very sad story and um, one that sort of almost needs a separate book to itself because um, she was such a an inspirational figure. And she did all sorts of um, marvellous things as far as the engineering society was concerned. And then she went into politics to campaign for women's rights. But she, she wasn't very successful because of those days, of course. There were, there were almost no women in Parliament. I mean, um, there were, we just got the, the vote in um, 1918. Um, but there were only, by the time Rachel was, was standing, there were only two women MPs. So she was um, up against it, really. Um, so she went on campaigning all, all her life. But then towards the end, she, well, she became very rich. So she inherited her, she was an only, by this time an only child. And her, when her parents died, she, they were, because they were, Charles was this great inventor. And he also set up his own um, businesses in Newcastle, Newcastle at some time. And... Um, so Charles set up his businesses in Newcastle upon Tyne, and um, he he'd made a huge, you know, huge success of them. That these steam turbines were in um, factories around the world. In fact, they still are. Most power stations in the world are still driven by steam turbines. Uh, so you can imagine that the riches in the, that came to the family. Um, anyway, Rachel became very rich, but she had no purpose in life because. She, that's the way she felt because she'd, um, you know, she hadn't been allowed to be an engineer. She hadn't gone into politics. She wasn't. She, she'd failed in her attempt to go into politics. Um, so she then retired to uh, Newmarket in Suffolk, where she became a racehorse owner, um, and she had a, a very successful racing stable for a while. Although she was struggling there too, because in fact the racing world is rather anti-women, as, as was engineering at the time. So um, she, she actually made quite a few enemies because a lot of people who didn't think that women should be involved in this, but also she was so-called difficult woman at that stage. She was, uh, you know, would provoke people to some degree. And uh, the sad thing was that she was actually murdered. She was murdered by a, by a stable boy. And that's a, that's a very long story, which sadly, I, you have to read my book to, 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 to understand it. But it, it was a, you know, a very um, tragic end to, to what had been a brilliant life. And then another remarkable woman in the, in the book as well, Caroline Haslett, who really became, you could, I suppose you could call her almost the leading professional woman of her time and uh, hugely influential in the development of electricity. Yes, she was she was a very different character from Rachel. Um, but I think that was what was interesting that they these group came together and they were all contrasting characters. But somehow they they managed to work together. And Caroline was an amazing example of that. Really, she again she wasn't trained. There were very few trained uh, engineers in this. I mean, she she she'd worked in a boiler factory in in southwest Scotland um, during the war, the First World War. But um, afterwards, she she loved just loved the the whole business of engineering and felt it was her spiritual home and after the war she came she joined the society uh, as the first secretary she was employed by them and um she her, her great mission caroline has this great mission in life was to uh, relieve women from domestic drudgery by electrifying the home and of course now we all we take all these things for granted but in the 1920s 1930s 
electricity was a very new thing. And um, Caroline um, was, uh, uh, she'd actually had a, she spent much of her life, it, she was had a spinal condition, which meant she had to lie on her back for many hours. And um, she was watching her mother and the other women of the household spending their whole day uh, doing these chores, domestic chores, which were very, um, you know, exhausting and time-consuming. And, and, and she was right. Electricity is the thing. You know, we need cookers and uh, irons and fridges and all this sort of thing in the home. And so that was her thing. But what she did was she was, she was a very good at... Um, um, she was a very good networker. And she realized that in order for women to make headway, they had to um, basically have men as friends. And so uh, whereas Rachel was rather antagonistic to men, she, was, uh, she wanted to work with men and she persuaded all the engineering institutions to take men, to take, um, she persuaded uh, the institutions to take women on um, as members institutions, civil engineers, et cetera, et cetera, which was very you know, important, um, gave them a voice. And then she, um, she went on to set up, actually, later, um, the Electrical Association for Women, which was an offshoot of the Women's Engineering Society. And that became really important and it had international links, because this was going on elsewhere in the world. So she was linking up with other women's engineering groups around the world. And it built her up into a great, you know, she was important. She was influential, Caroline. And um, she went on, she was, she was made a dame. She, must have been, she was definitely the first woman engineer to be made a dame. And um, she, was, she joined, she was the first woman to join the Central Electricity Generating Board. Um, this kind of thing. So she, she had a lasting influence. Very good. Well, a fascinating story, and you tell it so well in the book. It's called Magnificent Women and the Revolutionary Machines, published in paperback by Unbound. It costs about thirteen euro. The author Henrietta Heald. And Henrietta, thank you so much for joining us tonight. It's been a great pleasure. Thank you, Patrick. We'll be back with more talking history on News Talk right after this. Talking history, history. on News Talk. Well, welcome back to Talking History. The story of humanity is the story of textiles, as old as civilization itself. Textiles created empires and powered invention. They established trade routes and drew nations' borders. Since the first thread was spun, fabric has driven technology, business, politics and culture. And a new book traces this surprising history. The book is called The Fabric of Civilization: How Textiles Made the World. It's published in hardback by Basic Books and costs around 28 euro. The author is Virginia Postrel. And Virginia, you're very welcome to the show tonight. Thank you. It's great to be with you. It is a fascinating story and it's and it's something that we really might not think about the way you could look at textiles and actually uh, explore and trace out the story of civilization and and let's talk about how it has driven some of these changes for example chemistry how does chemistry have a connection with with textiles absolutely so the story of chemistry is basically the story of dyes uh, for many many thousands of years uh, people did dyeing through trial and error experimentation. And the story of dyes shows just how far you can get through that. Dyeing was sort of like cooking. Uh, You could tell how it came out. And so therefore, uh, you could make improvements. And people created many different kinds of dyes um, with many different ingredients around the world. Indigo, for example, the blue that is in blue jeans was invented all around the world using different plants. And then beginning in the 18th century, maybe the 17th, depending on how you date it, but with the rise of thinking about chemistry really as a science, dyeing became one of the first applications of that. And by the 19th century, people were really attacking the problem of how do we get better dyes. And the chemical industry starts with dyeing. Uh, There was a young man, he was actually still a teenager, who was a chemistry student in London. His name was William Perkin. He went home for Easter vacation, and he was trying to apply his chemistry to create quinine, which was a new, uh, a very important anti-malarial drug. And his 
experiments completely flopped, but when he dissolved uh, this sort of residue in alcohol, it turned purple. And he thought, hey, this could be a dye. I could start a company. And he did. It was very hard because essentially to go from the lab bench to uh, quantities that the textile manufacturers could use, he had to invent the chemical industry. <laughs> he had to invent the apparatuses. He had to invent the uh, the processes not only for making the dye but for making the ingredients that went into the dye and from that the modern chemistry uh, chemical industry developed uh, from that knowledge of dyes uh, for example Bayer aspirin Bayer started as a dye works and aspirin came out of that many drugs uh, glues and adhesives, explosives, photographic chemicals, fertilizers, all the things we know of as sort of chemicals, that we, many of which we don't even think about. And then, of course, in the 20th century, you get uh, synthetic fibers and uh, plastics. And so all of these drivers of change throughout the centuries can all be traced back to, to the textiles. You mentioned denim there, and that's a fascinating part of the story as well, because when you're looking at the amount of thread that's involved there in weaving the denim, you know, it, you've, you draw an interesting link with, with how then you had the marketing and the imagery associated around that. Yes, one of the things that we don't appreciate it and that I didn't appreciate fully until I started working on this book is how much thread it takes to make cloth. So for example, in in the denim that's in a typical pair of blue jeans, there is six miles or 10 kilometers of thread. Uh, and in the pre-industrial revolution world, so before the late 18th century, the fastest spinners in the world, uh, who at that time were Indians uh, using the charka, would have taken the equivalent of, of nearly two weeks to make that much thread. So this is 100 hours to make that much thread. And so this constant, in order to get the thread for the cloth of everyday life, women, and it was a women's uh, job all around the world, uh, had to spend their lives spinning all the time. In fact, it was very important uh, in Ireland uh, was the source of much of the spun thread, particularly in linen for uh, the British uh, textile industry. Um, and because of this, in European art, European iconography, if you wanted to show the idea of industry, you didn't show smokestacks. This was before smokestacks. You showed a woman spinning because that was the quintessential industrious, important kind of labor. And it didn't matter if it was the Virgin Mary or a prostitute on a Greek vase. This is what women did. Uh, they were portrayed as spinning because that was something that had to be done all the time. Now, we're familiar with wars on drugs and bans on various substances that are seen as harmful and destructive. But I'm astonished that uh, for some countries in the past, there was a, a war on calico and, and attempts to prevent that getting any hold in a country. Yes. So when Indian cotton prints hit Europe in the 17th and 18th century, people went crazy. Uh, they were beautiful colors that didn't fade in the wash. They were very lightweight and comfortable. They were available, as we would say today, at all price points. If you were a serving girl, you could buy a kerchief. If you were an aristocrat, you might buy, uh, you might get a court gown made out of what were called calicos or Indians. And these Indian prints threatened the existing textile industries. And in some places, uh, like Britain, they were banned as imports, but you could produce similar, although not as good, uh, cloth internally. In France, they were treated the way we treat cocaine today. That is, it was a crime to possess or trade not only cotton prints imported from India, but any kind of printed fabric, any cotton fabric, uh, even if it was made in France by French manufacturers, and any fabric from India. So 
it was this universal prohibition. And for 73 years, people could be arrested and put in jail without trial if they were spotted wearing these calicos. Traffickers could be sent to the galleys or put to death, but it never worked. I mean, what's amazing is despite these very strong penalties, uh, people would even wear calicos to the court of Versailles. Uh, people, they were very easy to smuggle in from places like Switzerland and the Netherlands where they were legal. And so there was this prohibition with massive resistance that went on for 73 years until finally uh, the idea that it was not just ineffectual but unjust rose in France and the prohibition was repealed and replaced with a 25% tax on imported Indian calicos. And out of that, once it was legal to import just the plain cotton fiber uh, fabric into France, French manufacturers developed their own uh, styles called toile, which had these little rural scenes on them inspired by uh, porcelains from China. And that's been very successful. And we still see toile go in and out of style to this day. Okay, well, it's a fascinating story and it's told so well in the book. It's called The Fabric of Civilization: How Textiles Made the World, published in hardback by Basic Books. It costs around €28. The author is Virginia Postrel. And Virginia, thank you so much for joining us tonight. Thank you. We'll be back with more Talking History on News Talk right after this. Talking History on News Talk. Well, welcome back to Talking History. Britain has long been fascinated with its own history and identity. As an island nation besieged by invaders from beyond the seas, the Romans, Vikings and Normans, the long saga of prehistory is often forgotten. But a new book presents 10 astounding archaeological discoveries that shed new light on those who came before. The book is called Digging Up Britain, A New History in 10 Extraordinary Discoveries. It's published in paperback by Thames and Hudson and costs 12.99 sterling, so about 16 euro. The author is Mike Pitts and Mike you're very welcome to the show tonight. Thank you Patrick. Good to be here. Uh, let's talk about some of these extraordinary discoveries because you get an insight into things like burials and treasure and migrations and even the types of, of, of beliefs that people had in these prehistoric times. Yeah, we do. And what I've done is I've, I've focused on 10 new discoveries and they're all really quite new projects. Um, and some of them are still continuing excavations and research continue. Um, and what is astonishing is that in every case, we see worlds um, over this long period of nearly a million years, these 10 sites and discoveries are scattered, um, that in every case, they're completely different from our own in so many ways. Um, and, you know, whether, whether it's the way they create and consume their food, the diets they have, their health, um, how they live, the sort of communities they live in, the houses they build, the clothes they wear, um, their beliefs, um, how they dispose of their dead, and so on and so on. Everything changing. It's just phenomenally complicated and varied and absolutely fascinating. And talking about some of the things that we get an insight into then. So, for example, prehistoric beliefs. Tell me about the Ice Age cave and what we learn about uh, some of the people who came to a sticky end there. One of the... um, places I look at is a cave in Somerset called Goffs Cave. And it's an utterly fascinating place. It's sort of perched on that area between us today and ancient early humans, you know, Neanderthals and earlier species. So it's at the end of the Ice Age that the people there are very modern humans. So they're among the earliest uh, modern humans we see in in Britain. and they're a kind of local representation of a world that we know much better from the continent, which includes um, fantastic stuff like the cave art, um, which we have tiny hints of in Britain. We know it was happening, but we just don't have the preservation here. Um, and these people were highly sophisticated hunters of big game, of mammoth and, and giant cattle and reindeer. Um, and um, and they had fantastic art, and they lived in re- sometimes really quite challenging conditions in very cold climates sometimes, 
And they clearly had skills that enabled them to survive in these conditions, um, were very sophisticated and capable craftspeople, um, you know, making clothes and so on that enable them to cope with extreme conditions. Um, and so we look at them and we think, well, these are, in some ways, these are people like us, you know, they're, they're, um, they understand their world very well. Um, they are occasionally they're burying their dead um, and they have this fantastic art that we can engage with. I mean, really engage. And, and when this art was being discovered uh, in the earlier part of the 20th century for the first time, really, um, people were looking at it and seeing it as something that was equivalent to contemporary art in Europe at the time. Um, and we still are, are astonished by it. And yet, what we see at Goff's Cave is something that is utterly, at the same time, alien to us. And that is, there are a number of um, human remains from this cave, really quite well preserved. And recent study of them has shown, without doubt, that they were filleted and deceptive and butchered um, very carefully and with extreme skill using the same techniques that were applied by these people um, to butchering and filleting the animals that they ate. But then they ate these people and they carved cups out of the skulls, drinking cups out of the skulls. And what was going through their heads, we have no idea. But the impression you get, we get, is that this was in some way a respectful ritual you know this wasn't something um driven by war or conflict or perhaps starvation because there was copious opportunities for hunting wild animals and um and, and other foods in the area where they were living at the time and so we think that in some way that these people were respecting their dead in the same way that perhaps they actually brought to the animals that they killed that they also respected and so there was something almost ritualistic even perhaps in the butchering of, say, a reindeer, um, and that this in some ways is also reflected in the art we see in their caves, where they depict these animals with extraordinarily visual skill and anatomical knowledge. And this is also a world of, well, as you even show there, it's a world of surprises and a lot of things you wouldn't expect, including the way uh, you have people uh, travelling around, trading, uh, that it's it's a much more elaborate world than we might have imagined. The travel is is a really important thing. I, I think that you mentioned that, and it's it's there's a really interesting history of um, approaching migration travel in archaeology and in the very early years of archaeology, in the kind of um, 19th century, earlier 20th century, um, there was a very strong tendency in Britain to see anything that happened, any any change or anything that happened that was good in prehistory um, as the result of the arrival of new peoples into the country. And this was kind of like working back in a sense from the Anglo-Saxon era and the Norman invasion you know, and, and, and the Roman invasion, you know, that um, the early histories were sort of read at the time as being um, stories where what progress, as it were, was achieved by the rise of new new people who brought new ideas and, and, and new energy. Um, and this was kind of taken back through the past. And, and prehistory was seen as a succession of kind of violent invasions where new people arrived quite regularly, brought new cultures and new beliefs and so on. Um, and in the kind of 1960s and 70s, um, archaeologists just rejected this completely. But this isn't really history. What we need to do is we want to look at the people in within the British Isles um, and try and define them in their own terms um, and say, actually, look, you know, they're quite clever, these people. They're, they understand their landscapes. Um, they're making a good living. Um, when change occurs, it's because these people are adapting to changes occurring across Europe um, and they're just reflecting these in a local way. Um, and the idea that there was any migration at all was almost snuffed out. And then in the past decade, and this is changing almost monthly now, as new information keeps coming in, um, ancient DNA has completely revolutionized that. And we're revisiting now old ideas about migration and invasion. Um, 
And I mean, there's fantastic work being done. I mean, for example, Trinity College Dublin, Lara Cassidy has been leading a team who's been doing some really interesting work with um, prehistoric remains from Ireland. That, and the results she's getting fit into a, a pan-European pattern that we see um, where after the Ice Age, so the, the people who were at Goff's Cave and their successors um, were related to each other across the Europe. And you get um, millennia later, these people are, are extremely successful survivors in, um, in this uh, Europe that becomes increasingly forested um, as the climate warms. And that starts to change quite dramatically um, around about 6,000 BC when farmers arrive into Europe from outside and they bring everything with them, the crops, the domesticated crops and the animals, the cattle, sheep and so on. Um, and they cover Europe, they're everywhere in the Europe and they mix, they interbreed with the native hunter-gatherers. And for some reason, it takes a bit of a time for that change and that culture and that complete the new economy to cross the waters to reach Ireland and to reach Britain. But when it does, the same thing happens. We see in the DNA that um, uh, we see these new people arriving. So what we see in particular in Ireland and, and Britain is, is a more dramatic change than we see on the continent of Europe, which is that um, there appears to be an almost complete replacement. There are hardly any hunter-gatherers left from about 4,000 BC in Britain and in Ireland. Um, and that type of story, that change, is continuing with, you know, through, through history right up until we get into the Roman era and beyond and more recently. Um, and what we're doing now is the, the science is becoming more sophisticated and more precise and more studies are being done. Um, we're starting to get a better understanding of actually what happens when you have these dramatic changes in, well, in it, DNA. Well, it is fascinating, Mike, and thank you so much for joining us tonight to, to talk to us about it. The book is called Digging Up Britain, A New History in Ten Extraordinary Discoveries, published in paperback by Thames and Hudson. The author, Mike Pitts. And Mike, thanks so much for joining us. Perfect, thank you. And that brings us to the end of another edition of Talking History. My thanks to everyone who put tonight's show together, Susan Cattle, my producer, and Peter Malloy on sound. We're at that stage of the year where we're sitting down to plan our shows for the next few months. If you have any great ideas, just drop us an email, talkinghistory at newstalk.com. Some of the ones that we have coming up, including Paris, the history of a city, the Mexican-American War, and the great artist Caravaggio. So join us next week and over the next few weeks and months on Newstalk. We've been talking history. Good night. Talking history on News Talk.